Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to write a dissertation, um, raise a kid, survive the pandemic, and maybe, improbably, probably not, get a job eventually. Today, I am joined by Professor Sarah Ann Carter, who runs the Center for Design and Material Culture at uh, University of Wisconsin. Madison. And today we're going to be talking about her book, Object Lessons. Um, you can also check out a, what looks to be a really fantastic edited volume, The Oxford Handbook of History and Material Culture, which I think is out for a reasonable price now, right? Is, is that correct, Sarah? Um, the, the hardcover is a little pricey, but it should be available online through all kinds of Oxford um, online resources. Um, and people can also check out uh, the Center for Design and Material Culture at University of Wisconsin-Madison virtually. You guys are doing lots of exciting stuff on our you know, disembodied social media things, right? I, like if I went to your Instagram page, what would I find right now? Well, um, really interesting conversations with artists, uh, an online exhibit about the microbes that live on all of our bodies, online exhibits about uh, refugees telling their own stories connected to textiles in our collection, a lot of meaningful work that we're trying to find ways to translate from our galleries and from our physical space at UW-Madison to an online audience. And I will put links to all of those things up on the website, historian.live. Um, so we, on the podcast, we've, we've, we've talked a lot about material culture um, in the past. Uh, it's one of, one of the things that I'm curious about. I just like, there's something about like the, th about things in the past that, that really speaks to me. But when we've talked about it, it's usually been done as a history of particular things. Like uh, we've talked about, um, tapioca, the history of tapioca, where tapioca originated from and where it went. But and, and and sometimes we've talked about what people thought about those things. But but Sarah, your 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 book shows us something different that, that that I think is really fascinating, which is how people thought with things, like how people used objects to think. And and the word that we usually think about that with is is the word object lesson, which I've always used in my thirty six years of life. Just to mean, like, I don't know, like a lesson. <laughs> but what you've shown in your book is that is that an object lesson is actually a way that people in the 19th century learned in school. Um, and and I, I want us to, to 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 learn that story. But before we jump in that, tell me what what was school like in 19th century America before object lessons? Like who was going to school and like how long was school? And yeah. Well, in the early 19th century, and my, my project really focuses initially on New England and on the northeastern parts of the United States, thinking about the, you know, the early common school movement, thinking about opportunities. Children had to be in ungraded schools, so schools not divided by, um, by grades in the way they are today. Children learning communally, focusing in a lot of cases on rote learning, on memorization, on learning to read, learning basic mathematics. What does what does rote learning mean? So basically, learning based on memorization rather than understanding. Okay. So learning to um, sort of pare it back, perhaps it was often a term that was used um, by educational reformers in the nineteenth century to pare it back to uh, memorize and to claim poetry or texts to um, take something in and then to basically parrot it back. The, the common school movement, which starts in the Northeast, 
in the first half of the 19th century is really focused on trying to figure out how to give children a good basic foundation for their learning and to think critically about how to deliver that information. And it's within those contexts and systems of trying to create schools that children could attend that followed um, basic curricular uh, basic curricular forms that uh, the object lesson movement becomes spread and shared throughout the Northeast. Yeah. So, so, so let's talk about the object lesson. Like what, what was it? I, I know that from reading your book now that I'm using the word object lesson, well, wrong, but at least not what they're using it like in the 19th century. It's talking about a very specific thing. So what, what would things be like if I were a student in an, uh, an object lesson? Well, First off, it's not that you're using the word object lesson incorrectly. It's one of these strange cases in which the metaphor of the object lesson actually mm. hid this 19th century history. Right. So in the 19th century, starting in, in the U.S. in the mid-19th century, we start to see object lessons being used as, um, as a way to describe a lesson that starts with a material thing yeah. and then develops outward and around that material thing to consider the qualities that make that object what you think it is, hmm. to think about what are qualities that um, we can't actually get from close looking at this object, but can help us understand the world that created it, where it came from, why it's important, um, to help us think about how we might categorize and sort and understand these particular material things. How do we make sense of the um, categories and context they're a part of? And then the students were taught to write about and to uh, write compositions about these material things, hmm. to turn the information that they might gather from looking closely at something into a narrative. So the object lesson um, became a way to go from object to text, from a material thing to language and words, from object to idea, um, in lots of interesting ways, and the ways in which it comes to be used in the United States um, in the second half of the 19th century. And so what sort of objects might be at the center of an object lesson? Like I, I, I'm still kind of trapped in that red schoolhouse. Like, and I think like an apple or like a pencil, but what sort of things would, would, would people be doing object lessons for? Well, the idea was that object lessons could be done on any sort of object that uh, children and teachers might encounter. And in fact, teachers were instructed to either purchase or to create their own classroom museums hmm. that would let them do that kind of work. Um, so early on, object lessons or the basic ideas around object lessons or Anschlag Unterricht sense perception exercises, as they were described um, in German, the idea was that children were, they wanted to teach children with the objects around them, the objects in their everyday lives. And that was what motivated um, Johann Heinrich Pestalozzi, who's a European pedagogue to say, okay, I want children to not study a picture of a window mm. in a book, but to actually look at the window in the classroom and to study that window and to understand it. And so as those ideas were gradually through various interesting uh, pathways and ended up in the United States, and we're back in that um, you know, red schoolhouse that you're imagining. Object lesson ideas could be brought into that context you know, through objects that you might be able to find or purchase in your community, whether it is um, a lump of coal or a hunk of ginger or a piece of porcelain or a rubber comb. All of those sorts of objects could become 
really quite amazing um, sort of nuclei around which a whole range of ideas could be wrapped, right? Those objects become sort of the center of stories that help us understand labor, that might help us understand uh, systems of production, and that could help you understand really big ideas about something being foreign versus domestic, something being familiar versus unfamiliar. One of one of the really interesting things uh, that I got from reading your book as, as a teacher sometimes was how the object lesson actually proceeded. Like what it, it, it does get you to these really big and and sometimes difficult concepts, but it, it proceeds there somewhat slowly. Can can you just walk us through the stages of 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 how students would appreciate these objects, like how they would get to that point where they'd be able to say, look at a hunk of ginger and then write an essay about like the, 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 I guess what we'd call the political economy of ginger. Right. Um, and actually teaching with a hunk of ginger is something I often do in my own classes in material culture to really illustrate that point. So students would initially in a 19th century context or in a contemporary classroom, if you were to play with these ideas, a student would actually start with that object, that hunk of ginger in their hands. Hmm. And the idea is that they would physically have to look at it, to describe it, to, um, in the first step, you know, describe it, try to understand it, try to connect it to um, the qualities of that object. So what are the qualities of a hunk of ginger. And those qualities might include the way it feels in your fingers. It might include the way it tastes. Hmm. It might include its texture. It might include its smell. It might um, include its color. It might include its shape. So those are all the material qualities of that substance, that hunk of ginger in your hand. And, and I think just, just I, I've t- I, I, one of, another thing that struck me is I, I've taught students um, how to write by trying to get them to uh, describe pictures in writing to one another. Um, because I mm-hmm. think that, that when you read 19th century writing, you can tell you know, by, by the, the accuracy of their physical descriptions that they had this ability to really notice the things around them and to put them into words. And something that you know, when you read Tolstoy or, or, or Mark Twain, you're like, oh, man, they were so good. But I think that what your book taught me is that it's because they were taught how to notice things. Exactly. When you're holding that piece of ginger in your hand, it takes skill to slow down and to attend to the things that you're actually seeing. So that's the first step. How do do we get get from that deep attention uh, to a hunk of ginger? What's, what's, What's the next part that gets us on the road to writing an essay about it? So the next part would be thinking about, um, you know, are those, what are the essential qualities that make that what it is? So understanding what about this hunk of ginger makes it ginger versus maybe it's accidentally shaped like a a human figure. Maybe it's accidentally, um, you know, dried out. So it doesn't smell as much as it should. I mean, so there are accidental versus essential qualities of that object or material that you would think through and try to investigate together. Um, And then the next step is thinking about what's information about this object that I can't get from looking at it. Hmm. And so this is a case in which an educator would um, bring in outside information that you can't get just from looking at that hunk of ginger. Um, And that information can be, you know, well, how did it get here? Where does it come from? Um, Do I associate it with a particular kind of food or a particular place? Um, does it 
remind me of something and remind someone else of something else. Like when I teach with this in the 21st century classroom, you know, I have students um, who come from family backgrounds where they eat a lot of ginger. I have students who come from family contexts where they don't. And that gets us into interesting conversations about, um, you know, food and culture and how we might have very different interpretations of this same object based on those, um, you know, that, that outside information that we bring with us to any object that we study. So starting with the object, the, the qualities of that object that are essential to it, that are part of it, um, then sort of zooming out, thinking about information that helps us understand ginger, but that we bring to it, mm-hmm. this larger contextual information that we bring to it. And, and I noticed when you're, when you're staging um, these object lessons just now, you, 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 you use a lot of questions. Is that like a pedagogical stat- strategy of the object lesson with the teacher be yes. asking questions to the students of, 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 of the object itself? Yes, exactly. And that um, in, in many 19th century textbooks, you can actually sort of read through models of these lessons mm-hmm. in which you're being invited, you're inviting students to look closely, you're asking them questions, you're not supposed to just tell them the, you know, accidental versus essential qualities of these objects, these ideas are supposed to be developed. And that was actually a major critique of object lessons at that time because there was this concern that, well, teachers were skipping that step and just telling children what to think yeah. or what to find in the object. Yeah. And so that was a common critique of the practice, but that was the way it was supposed to work. Yeah. And, and so after you've explored this object with, with you know, first with your, with your immediate sense perceptions and then from, from testimony, uh, how, what happened? What happened next? Like what, what well, next you're supposed to sort the objects and put hmm. them into categories. So something like ginger would be sorted as, as a spice perhaps, right? And then think out what are other things in that category? What are other um, substances? that fall into that category. And you begin to see in that process that as you're categorizing things, yes, they're falling into, in some cases, you know, understood scientific or cultural categories, but it also becomes clear that you're making an argument about that substance. And you're making a claim that based on what you've determined through your physical examination um, and then through information that you as an observer are bringing to it, you are sorting it and putting into a particular category. Okay, so 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 this categorization isn't just like, you know, this is a bird. It's like no to to say that a stork is a bird requires an argument. Exactly. Why is it a bird? Yeah. You know what? Why is it a bird and not a cat? You know, or why is it a bird not a feline or something? Yeah. Like that. And absolutely right. So it requires a certain level of argumentation based on detail and putting that information um, into that context, into that category. And then the next step would be taking all this information and writing a composition yeah. that um, explains all of these levels of material, contextual, categorical analysis of that object. Yeah. And, and that would be like a, 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 it would look more familiar to us like a traditional essay, like essay on ginger. What's so fascinating to me about this process is that if you just had that essay um, and there are, you know, examples of those essays that survive, and there are certainly models of those kinds of essays in 19th century textbooks. Um, you would not necessarily know that one had been instructed to go through this complex complex process to get there, yeah. or that you wouldn't necessarily know that um, one had, you know, looked closely, done these different levels of analysis and work, really shaped the way 
a 19th century student was taught to engage with material things. You might just, as you had mentioned earlier, see a very detailed and deeply described piece of writing about, um, about a material thing in the world. I mean, when you look through 19th century writing, oftentimes there's a lot of detailed description of objects, you know, like. Exactly. And I believe, and I do, I do believe that is because children were taught to engage in the world in that way. And when you think about, you know, it Wharton refers to as like the hieroglyphic world of, of 19th century American life. Like you're, you're in a world in which objects can imply all of those different meanings that one might, um, one might imagine yeah. um, through that kind of analysis, and something something that's that 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 struck me that that, that that reading your book helped me understand is kind of the 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 part of the relationship in the nineteenth century that people had between between things and and words. Like right now, right. if if I want to look at the objects in in the collection of the Center for Design and Material Culture. I can go to your Instagram page and I can see pictures of them. But in the 19th century, like pictures were like, you could have a picture. Um, there did end up being photography. You could have an etching, but they were expensive and difficult. And if you wrote a letter home to your parents about the person that you just met, you'd have to describe them and attend, like right. take time to put into words, to, to consciously think about like physical objects in a way that I feel like we've, we've kind of, lost. And I, I don't know, reading your book made me want to go back in time and be educated in object lessons myself so I could actually learn how to write. Well, sometimes I think, I mean, I went to Montessori school myself um, for, you know, through third grade. And I think that there are still places in which students are learning with some of the intellectual descendants of hmm. these methods, right? Some of the ideas carry forward in um, in some of those contexts, like Montessori school, like they, they're object lessons that are used in 21st century kindergarten contexts, though clearly not in the same way and not as a foundational aspect of, um, of primary and secondary school education yeah. as they were in a lot of places, um, particularly in the third decade of the 19th century. I mean, at that time, if you go through um, the curriculum of, you know, a whole range of schools, you'll actually find object lessons listed alongside, you know, reading or mathematics or other kinds of lessons. Like object lessons was itself a separate, a separate class. And, and what can this t- like? What can this tell us about how nineteenth-century people thought that that might be different to us? Like right now, I, I we're talking over Zoom, where we've never been in the same room together. Um, this, the people who are listening to our voices likely have never been in the same room with either one of us. We live in like a world that's relatively disconnected to material things, except for like the few things that are portals into uh, uh, the world, like our computers. But but what have we lost now that that we've stopped thinking with objects? Or what did the 19th century have that we don't? Well, I think just from the perspective of thinking about um, specific objects, there was a much deeper and richer understanding, I would say, in um, the ways that objects might actually sort of crystallize a whole range of ideas or practices or contexts. There was a deeper understanding, not necessarily a critical understanding, not necessarily an understanding um, in all cases of the um, the you know problems of the labor that might be crystallized into a particular object, or 
the systems of power that might be crystallized into a into sort of the form of a particular object. But there was an understanding of where and how those things came from. Hmm. Um, and I think more of a value being placed in the notion that um, this material thing comes from a particular place and I can study it and understand it and maybe access some of those ideas through that um, the close looking and that material engagement. And I think that also helps us understand, um, you know, the the rise of um, museums in the 19th century. Yeah. I think that helps us understand more about the power of department stores in the late 19th century. Um, that can help us think more about the ways that objects seem to invite or suggest a whole range of symbolic and storytelling possibilities um, that might feel more opaque to a 21st century audience. Yeah. Like in, in, in your book, you discuss how, how students who've been educated in object lessons are, are trained to pause in front of an object and to really like look at it and take it in. So you're saying that, right. that, that peop, the people who grew up in this object literate world, they they experience things like museums differently because they could pause in front of the objects and really understand them. I mean, I that makes I feel <laughs> I feel a little bit like my own appreciation of museums is being indicted in this because if you ever see me in a museum, I'm you know I'm pretty breezy about it. I'm not doing much pausing. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think there is there is something. I think there is something to that in the sense that, um, you know, children absolutely were taught to pause and to stop and to look at things as, uh, as containers of knowledge and as containers of information and as, uh, as ways to understand the complex systems and categories that shape their worlds. Um, and, and in being taught to do that from a very young age as a, um, as a foundational part of, their, you know, ways of learning to move in the world, it, it can't help but shape the way one experiences objects in museums. It can't help but shape the way um, objects may be understood to have um, symbolic qualities. Yeah. Um, but what it also does is it allows abstract concepts to be embedded in material things. Yeah. Um, and that is also incredibly problematic. So, for example, with something like ginger, um, you know, concepts could be embedded into it, into it like, oh, this might feel foreign or mm. this is something that was imported here or this is something that feels um, different or distant for various reasons. Those concepts are not part of the way that thing smells or tastes or feels, um, but those abstract ideas might become associated with that material thing. And it's that way of thinking that... Um, also managed to um, to make object lessons useful for 19th century Americans who were talking about race, um, you know, in the context of um, Native Americans and African Americans in, in particular, who were often referred to as living object lessons. Wait, wait, so, so um, that's yeah. amazing. These the Native Americans and, and, and Black people in the 19th century were were, were referred to as as, as human object, well, human object lessons, living object lessons. Yes. Um, yes. And, and that, um, that for me was a surprise as I, you know, dove more and more into, into my research for this project. Um, and it became very apparent that, for example, at places like, um, the Hanson Institute, um, or the Carlisle Indian School, um, leaders in those institutions explicitly referred to 
their students um, as living object lessons. Uh, that the, the school could transform um, an African-American student into um, an exemplar, into huh. a model citizen, um, and that their bodies would serve as object lessons and what that kind of education could do. Um, for Native American students, the same thing. The same thing was true, often with the kinds of, um, you know, both before and after pictures that were quite a popular visual rhetoric to describe um, the experiences um, of, you know, the, the cultural theft, basically, that Native American students would often go through when they um, went away to school, whether they were forced to go to school or chose to go to school. Um, those before and after pictures are often referred to as object lessons, that they had, you know, shown what could be made of a Native student through this educational process. Um, yeah, and in, in applying the method to the bodies of individuals, it also moved it away from the classroom applications hmm. and transformed it further and further into the metaphor that um, we think of when we hear the phrase object lesson. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm a little stunned at this. Like it's, it's, it, it's one thing to, to pick up a piece of ginger or coal and to, to, you know, think analytically about it and to connect it with various concepts and then to use that as a symbol of, of particular things. But then to think of, of people as object lessons is, right. is a little stunning. Um, and so they were object lessons because they were examples of the possibility of, of Native Americans and, and, and of Black people to go through a particular kind of educational regime and come out the other end you know, behaving and acting in particular ways. Am, am, am I right about that? Exactly. Yes. Um, yes. It's and and now I'm I'm recalling all the ways that people used object lessons in in daily life. It's like that that your drunk friend is an object lesson of why you shouldn't get drunk all the time. Is probably right, exactly right. <laughs> um, and so the, this 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 pattern of using particular examples of 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 marginalized groups as object lessons. You say begins to draw like draw the metaphor of, of object lessons out of the classroom and into other domains. Can you tell me a little bit more of that? Because I'm I'm not exactly understanding. Yeah. In places like so this, you know, we start to see more and more of this actually like in educational context. So let's say in the Hampton Institute, which, you know, is is a school, but it's also um, a place where yes, object lessons are used in the classroom in various ways. But the, that method and that concept becomes applied to the body of those students. And then that rhetoric is used by, uh, you know, uh, political commentators. It becomes used by political figures, by writers. Um, you know, like Booker T. Washington, for example, would you know, frequently refer to students as, you know, object lessons. as sort of what, um, what an ideal, um, you know, young man or woman could be. Yeah. And so you see um, this, the phrase really begins to more and more enter public conversation rather than kept in, um, in the narrower world of writings about schools. What, what is sort of powerful about that transformation is that in the process, it is moving the object lesson from pedagogical technique to metaphor, but at the same time, it's carrying with it some of the power of it as a pedagogical technique that gives one a way in which to connect abstract ideas to a material thing or to an image or to something that physically lives in yes. the world. 
And so it becomes an incredibly effective way to think about stereotypes and becomes an incredibly effective way to support that kind of thinking that if this looks a certain way, it means something particular. If this person looks a certain way, it means something about their access to natural rights, something about their access to citizenship, something about their um, their value in the world. Right. You, you said earlier that there's, there's kind of a way that 19th century people, Americans, thought with objects hieroglyphically that they're taught to interpret objects. And so here there's, there's like a hieroglyph, you see a, a, uh, my disheveled drunken friend, and they're not just a product of their circumstance. They're an object lesson for the moral inferiority of, of that friend, perhaps. Right, exactly. And, and using that kind of language or putting them in that kind of category or context, you're also you know, not really engaging with that person as an individual. Yes. They've become an exemplar in that case of what not to do. Um, but you know, evidence, an exemplar, not someone um, valued as an individual. Yeah. And I mean, thinking about your book made me want to run off to a museum, but of course all the museums are closed. <laughs> it made me want to you know, go back to my students and yell at them to look at the pictures and write write their little essays about them. But in our zoomified, dematerialized world right now, how how might we, like my my listeners and me, uh, get back to to learning and thinking with objects? I think paying attention to the things around us and in our own environments is as one part of that process. Um, I think about when I'm, you know, out in a, in a park with my six-year-old looking closely at the objects around us, looking closely at leaves, looking closely at, um, at plants and material specimens. And part of that is, you know, a, a central, like an early object lesson was what's asking students, what's the difference of a leaf and a picture of a leaf? Hmm. And something like that is actually a really interesting and complex problem. When you start thinking about, you know, what is the difference between this, you know, flat specimen and an image of this specimen? And how do I understand or interrogate this difference? Um, and so I feel like look, looking closely, imagining the materials in our homes and our environments mm-hmm. as connected to knowledge and um, a whole range of systems that we could begin to interrogate or think about. Um, I feel like that that is something valuable and interesting to think about, especially um, those of us who might be, you know, home with small children this fall or school age children, you know, imagining the things around us as, as, as having knowledge in them that we can tease out or we could try to understand through close looking and through some of these methods. And I, I have a seven month old and, and, and one of the things that she makes me do when we go on walks is everything's new to her. So she makes right. me pause. She makes she for her. It's the first time that she's seen the leaf. Well, or the twelfth time. Um, and I think that part of that is like is 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 like sitting down and like taking stock of like the particularity of the object in front of you. Absolutely, and I think that attentiveness um, is something that is incredibly valuable to historians who work with objects, who are material culture scholars, as I am, or to historians who look at any sort of historical documents or any sort of document, um, because you're really being asked to look closely, to try to understand what uh, what is the information that is embedded in this thing that I'm looking at, 
What information am I bringing to it as someone who comes at any given thing in the world with my own baggage and knowledge and experience? How do I make sense of it? How do I sort it? And then how might I write about it? What stories might I tell about it? How does this thing lead to um, bigger and deeper questions or possibilities? Uh, And at the core that, I mean, that's the object lesson method that's also really central to many material culture methods. But I think it's also connected to the work that historians do more broadly as we think about how do we engage with sources? Yeah. You know, how, how do we make sense of the things that we believe will help us tell a bigger story? And I think the object lesson method can definitely help with that kind that really meaningful intellectual work, even if it's a document on a computer screen. Yeah. Well, th- thank you very much for talking to me today, uh, Sarah. If if uh, you want a good object, go and buy Sarah's book, um, preferably <laughs> I mean, it does come from trees, but preferably get a physical copy. I read it on on my computer, and I felt like it opens with a beautiful wish that you unpack this box filled with things and find the book at the very bottom of a box. And reading it on the computer screen didn't do it justice. So buy a physical copy if you can. Um, it's reasonably priced and, and short uh, for such a, a deep book. Uh, thank you to uh, Jonathan Lear um, for our music and Duncan Barton for our image. Um, welcome. Uh, come back next week where we will be talking about the history of empathy. Ooh.